In the home stretch of October, and while the Supreme Court wasn't in session this week, there's still lots of high court news to get through. From the court agreeing to weigh in on the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to its sidestepping on a key arbitration case. This is The Term by Law360, a weekly podcast to keep you up to speed about the nation's top bench and the justices who preside there. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, an editor-at-large in New York. And joining me now is managing editor and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. It was only a matter of time before I got in this mic. I can't resist. Um, Jimmy Hoover is on vacation, so we'll have him back next week, which will be great, but uh, secretly a little pleased that Jimmy's out so I can be here to talk about some of these fun cases. Well, I am super grateful uh, for you to be here and to be talking about some Oh, you'll big see if cases. you're grateful, depending on how <laughs> this show goes. Um, but I want to dive right into some of the stuff you set us up with there in the intro. We had some grants this past week, we had some on Friday, and then we had another orders list on Monday. So I want to talk about some of those. We had four grants total. A um, couple of them are immigration, and normally, for anybody who listens to our other podcasts, Pro Se, they know I love talking about immigration. It's your forte. Uh, yeah, but I'm actually going to skip it this time <sighs> because they are very important cases. It's about um, both of the issues revolve around um, some asylum issues and what can be reviewed by courts. So they'll be important, but we can get to those later. CFPB is where all the hot action is from this this list of grants, so I want to dive into it. Yeah, that one has definitely dominated, I think, the headlines and all the chatter from Supreme Court watchers yeah. this week. So anybody following along, this one's called Celia Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And that bureau itself has always been pretty controversial. Um, part of that is because of how it's structured. It's this independent agency with a single director who can only be removed by the president under a very limited set of circumstances. So back in May, the Ninth Circuit said it is constitutionally permissible for the CFPB's director to have this four-cause removal provision. Yeah, but uh, I know there's like a lot of political back and forth going on in the background. Uh, tons, tons. Not everyone's so happy that they're so independent. Yeah, so people who love this agency say that because of that provision, it protects the mission of going up against big financial industry players. Um, and many of those often have sway over politicians. And they say that it could make the CFPB director the target of firing if there's a disagreement with some of their enforcement actions. But challengers in this case say that it unduly restricts presidential authority and it violates the separation of powers. So do we think that it's going to get political, uh, you know, with the justices well, <laughs> when it comes to argument time? It, it does feel that way just because of the topic we're talking about. But there's a really important wrinkle here that we don't always have. And that is we know exactly what Justice Brett Kavanaugh is going to do here. Say what? Yeah, we don't <laughs> usually know that kind of stuff um, with certainty at the Supreme Court. There's always surprises. That's why the Supreme Court's so compelling and exciting. But here... Kavanaugh came down squarely against the CFPB when a similar constitutional challenge was raised during his time on the D.C. Circuit bench. So in that case, there was an en banc majority that sided with the agency. But Kavanaugh said in a dissent that the CFPB structure is, quote, a gross departure from settled historical practice. And he proposed fixing it by striking down the four cause removal provision. So what does this mean for arguments with that kind of laying in the background? Yeah, I mean, I think that's only one person that we, we know for sure. But there is another notable thing about what to expect out of arguments, and that's that CFPB itself is no longer defending that four-cause removal restriction. Instead, it's adopting the Trump administration stance that the restriction's unconstitutional. So the agency itself is no longer defending this. I feel like these agency switches have just become so, like, 
such a major thread in all these Supreme Court cases over the last two yeah, years. Yeah, I definitely think we've seen several of these. And so that does leave us with like, uh, okay, well, who's going to argue then? Um, and actually, we got an answer this week. Yes, uh, we just heard that Paul Clement, uh, former U.S. Solicitor General and major heavy hitter on the yeah. Supreme Court bar, has been picked by the court to basically defend the the independence of the of the agency. That means it'll be a really spicy argument, I think. So it'll be one to watch. Um, but then it leads us into the next question of all right. So we get through arguments and we get a, a decision at some point. What's it going to mean if the court does decide that the CFPB is unconstitutionally structured? Um, and I want to just be clear with people that there's a couple ways this can go. The government has proposed doing exactly what Kavanaugh suggested in his D.C. Circuit dissent, and that would be striking that for-cause removal provision. That basically would mean that the president could fire the CFPB director whenever and for whatever reason. And the current Trump administration CFPB director says that wouldn't actually alter the day-to-day functioning of the agency. But there's another view of this. The law firm who brought the suit argued at the Ninth Circuit that the removal restriction is a key part of how the CFPB was designed, and you can't just slice it out. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch it when, when, yeah. when this finally comes before the court. I mean, the high court realizes that this is a real central and key thing they have to figure out. So they, they have actually, as part of the orders list, directed both sides to brief and argue whether or not that four-cause removal provision can be severed from the rest of the law that set up the Bureau. So this one's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I feel whenever they give those orders, uh, special orders for, for arguments, it's going to be an explosive one. Definitely. So... That's my big uh, grant that we should all now be watching. But we did have some some pretty interesting denial news. Yeah, you know, with uh, with the list, there was a lot that ended up on the pass pile, including one that a lot of court watchers had been keeping their eye on, uh, Cats versus Selco Partnership, which had had the potential to finally fix a circuit split um, into whether suits should be dismissed or stayed when compelled arbitration comes into play. Um, There was no explanation given, as per usual, with many of the denials. But this is such a big issue because uh, the difference between a stay and a dismissal can be the difference of a significant amount of time um, during court proceedings. So we had and there's such a major circuit split. Yeah, that's the thing. Anytime I hear circuit split and anytime we write about that here at Law 360, immediately we're like, oh, well, the justice will They'll take that, right? <laughs> because there's a big division. They want to clear up these ambiguities in the law. You would have thought. Um, but in the Katz case, you know, which is a Katz, just some background, a proposed class action accusing Verizon Inc. of concealed billing practices. Um, in that case, that came up from the Second Circuit. The the court had decided on a stay. So that's still left in place. Um, and it, he, the, the court, you know, basically said it enables the parties to proceed unencumbered by, you know, uncertainty and expense of additional litigation, which is fairly in line with similar decisions from the 7th, 10th, and 11th circuits. But you said there was a deep split, so I'm guessing there's a whole list of other circuits that say something else. Yes. On the other side, the 1st, 5th, and 9th circuits have all found that judges can dismiss suits um, that have been sent into arbitration. And the 4th circuit uh, has so far managed to dodge the issue, uh, but has kind of noted in a case where it was almost forced to that this is this is a split and there's a lot of tension here. I think this is one that sounds like it really will disappoint a lot of people that it didn't get taken up because it seemed like it was it was ready. Yeah, and you know, I, I it's frustrating I think to a lot of attorneys in this space when there is a, an issue like this that seems so ripe and it, it it doesn't 
get taken up. Um, but, you know, I, I'm starting to be of the opinion that I think it's better that the justices not pick up issues before they are ready. Um, and, you know, a large part of my opinion right now is being fueled by our latest in-depth package, uh, which did a Supreme Court preview before the term picked uh, kicked off this term. And the package, which dove into some really interesting data on precedent and vote splits, shone a light on how bad it can get if the court delivers a decision so split that it, itself that it leaves the lower courts in an even worse position, arguably, than if the high court hadn't taken up the issue at all. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know that um, our data team and our in-depth team crunched actual numbers here to talk about these so-called plurality opinions. So can we sort of explain like the landscape of what we're talking about here. Yeah, so I think everyone's familiar with divided votes, you know, the ever-present 5-4 splits that happen in many of the most controversial cases and that um, our data team, you know, has shown is on the rise. Um, Plurality rulings, though, are where there's no clear majority, say an odd 4-1-4 split. So that's the kind of opinion where four justices agree and then the one is like a concurrence where they agree with some portion of it, but then not all of it. And then you have four people dissenting. Exactly. And and while these kind of decisions are still pretty rare, they have been on the rise in the Roberts court. Our data team found that you know, around 7.6% of the court's rulings last term were plurality rulings, and which was up from like 6.8% the term before. And that sm- sounds like a small number, but given the consequences of a ruling like that, it actually is a big deal to see them on the rise. Um, can you explain exactly why these create a bit of chaos? Yes. So the exceptional and exceptionally talented feature reporter, Erin Coe, our colleague, uh, really dove into this issue. And, uh, you know, I think she shed a light on just what a huge headache, frankly, yeah. these rulings can be. Um, she took a look at a pl- how a plurality ruling in 2006, in this case known as Rapinos versus U.S., unfolded. Um, so some backstory, Rapinos versus U.S. dealt with the question of when are wetlands considered waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act? Um, it seems there's properties that fall under this purview that can be dry and relatively far from actual water. So there's a whole jurisdictional issue among the lower courts on this. Yeah. And people really care about this because it makes a big difference in terms of like developers and what they can do with various lands and what regulations you have to follow under the Clean Water Act or not, depending on how you're classified. Exactly. And and so the high court took up the case but failed to reach a consensus itself. Um, in, in a 414 decision, the late Justice Antonin Scalia wrote a plurality uh, opinion that said the authority uh, should extend only to relatively permanent bodies of water that are connected to traditionally navigable waters or wetlands. And traditionally navigable is like a key term in in, in this issue. Um, But the now retired Justice Anthony Kennedy mostly agreed with that decision, but not with the test. And in solo concurrence laid out a really less restrictive test. Well, that's what attorneys love to hear, that the test itself is what's disagreed with. Uh, I mean, that makes it really hard because the tests are everything. Exactly. Um, you know, this Erin's had this line in her story, when the justices fail to speak with one voice, where does that leave the law? <laughs> and, and where does that leave the law? What happened after that case was decided at the high court? So just another major circuit split. Some some courts have relied on Justice Kennedy's concurrence, while several other courts have ruled with the more plurality opinion from Justice Scalia. Yeah, I mean, that makes it so hard. I know that um, Aaron's story, which everybody really should read it. It's really great. Um, it had a really funny quote from an Alabama judge. 
Yes, he said, I, in quote, I will not compare the decision to making sausage because it would excessively demean sausage makers. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, sometimes we see these things where you think that the high court's going to be the last word. It's going to clear up all sorts of things. But in this instance, it maybe arguably made it worse. Arguably. And, you know, there's there's some suggestion that, you know, there might be more opinions like this, although there's also some hope that um, with Justice Kennedy off the bench, he was a, kind of a key part of a lot of these plurality rulings, okay. that they might kind of plateau now. Yeah, and what you were talking about before with the denial of that arbitration case, we don't know for sure because there isn't anything but an orders list. There's no written explanation for why they take or, or deny certain things. But some of this might be behind the scenes. I mean, Justice Roberts doesn't love these plurality decisions. No, he is. He has expressed sincere disdain for fractured rulings, and he wants it, it to the court to at least be able to get to narrow majorities. Yeah, that'll be an interesting thing for us to keep thinking about as we see more and more denials, which we'll see all throughout the term. Um, but now I want to transition to something that feels a little at home in the Pro Se podcast, which I normally host, which is we end most shows with an offbeat segment, which is just something fun and light. And Natalie, to make me feel right at home, you found one that's all about the Supreme Court. Yes. On Wednesday, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg won a million dollars. I mean, as if she doesn't have a great job already. <laughs> just another thing that RBG excels at. What'd she win? She won the 2019 Bergeron Prize for Philosophy and Culture and, and, and basically won for her pioneering gender equality work and for strengthening the rule of law. So basically an award for her entire life's work. That's exactly. pretty great. Yes, yes. And and life's work that she continues. You know, she was actually, um, the prize came just a few days after she was speaking to Berkeley Law School students and was telling them how, while gender equity has come a long way. There's still more work to do um, to overcome the unconscious biases in the workplace. And she was definitely, you know, making a case for for continuing the the kind of fight on on this issue. Yeah, we've all seen the movies. We know her her long background in in this area. And I have a lot of favorite RBG quotes. Like my favorite is actually um, the one where she was asked, "When will will there be enough women on the Supreme Court?" And her quote was. When there are nine. Yes. That one's very famous. I love it. But she also made another interesting uh, comment, uh, some more quotes that I might like. Do you yes. want to tell us about so this? So she was sharing some advice to young women, including some tried and true advice, uh, such as, you know, finding a partner who supports you. Yeah. Um, she also shared uh, her mother-in-law's advice uh, that in a marriage, it helps every now and then to be a little bit deaf uh, in a marriage. <laughs> now, I'm not sure I personally agree with that tidbit, but I found it interesting and perhaps a bit of a glimpse into the workings of the high court that uh, Justice Ginsburg said she's found that advice helpful not only in marriage, but also to this day in dealing with colleagues. You know, I'm going to go home now to my husband, Andrew, and if I ignore something he has said to me, I'm just going to be able to say, like, RBG told me, like, this was the advice. This is how it should go. How can you go wrong? Exactly. Well, <laughs> thanks a lot for having me on the show today, Natalie. Amber, thank you so much for, for, for joining me today, and I think it was a great conversation. Jimmy, we'll be happy to have you back next week, but anytime you're gone, I'm going to jump right in. <laughs> next week, we'll be back and giving you a preview of what to expect from the November session. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, John Hill, Aaron Coe, Anne Cullen, and Nadia Dreit. Music for the show comes from Topher Moore and Alex Alana. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.